0: So Romans chapter 12 this morning, um, and we're going to get to it in just a second, but we're going to actually start this morning with a little bit of quiz work. You're like, wait a minute, I don't come to church to take tests. Sorry, then you're disappointed this morning, but a little bit of quiz work for you today. And um, first thing you'll see on your sheet there is a section, really it's the definition of union with Christ that we've been working on and it's got blanks that are left out. What do we? A pen. Oh, do you need a pen? Thank you, Jonathan. That is a good thing. If you need a pen, Jonathan's got a pen. Yeah, we've got a couple folks. Great. Awesome. Thank you, Jonathan. Uh, so the first thing you'll see, there's a couple blanks, and I just want to encourage you to do the best you can. Try to fill that in, uh, and that would be immensely helpful to you um, as we work towards and work forward and remembering and understanding and thinking through these, uh, these truths. Uh, it's been proven scientifically that just me compelling you to try to remember will help you to remember. Um, and so if, if there's a built-in expectation that I'm going to be asked or expected to try to produce this, then uh, it's going to help me to retain this information. I'm convinced this is uh, like lots of truth, honestly, in the Bible, but, but this one in particular that unless it's really seeded deeply into our memory banks, um, it's very difficult to apply. So much of this has to do with a right comprehension and a right understanding of our position in Christ and how that has worked. Uh, and So I want to encourage you to do the best thing, best you can there. I'll give you the answers to it in just a moment. I shouldn't have told you that, because now some of you are like, oh, well, I don't even have to try. Um, please don't be that person. Um, this is for your good. The next thing you'll see there is also three questions. I want to encourage you to start thinking through those even this morning. One tool I think would be helpful to remind my heart every day of my union with the death and resurrection of Christ. What is something practically you could do to help remember that reality? Um, I've given a couple suggestions in the first. This is lesson three of eight. Uh, I've given some suggestions in the first two sermons about some ways that you could do that. You may have come up with some on your own. Why is it important that I have the resurrection power of Christ at work in me to help me grow and change? Why does that even matter that I am in the resurrection of Christ? That means I am in that event, and his power, resurrection power, the same power that raised Jesus from the dead is now in me. Why does that even matter? Why is that important? Um, To help you grow and change in particular. I encourage you again, maybe a sentence or two. Think through that. And then the third one is one area of my life where I can see a deep need for change to be like Christ and why. Now, um, years and years ago, it, it's, it's ironic. <laughs> Several years ago, I had somebody tell me, I, I'm about to give you a question. And they said, I hate it when you ask that question. And your question is really unhelpful. It's a stumbling block in my sanctification. They like, so reacted to it. And it's, and it's kind of ironic because it's not original with me. I've quoted somebody else. So I, I, my response to them should have been, look, if you don't like that question, take it up with so-and-so. <laughs> um, Paul Tripp uh, asks it this way to help folks, and I've, I've personally found it very helpful. Uh, because when I think about my life and I think, where do I need to grow to change to be like Christ, it's easy for me to actually get stuck because I can think of so many ways that I'm not like Jesus. And I'm like, oh, and... Um, when, I, when I would get overwhelmed by all these areas and things that I know in my life need to change, it's easy for me to give up or feel like giving up because there's so much that needs to be changed. There's no way I can change it all. What's the point? Kind of a mindset. Uh, and instead, Paul Tripp, I think, has been helpful and just honestly as a believer responding to the presence of the Spirit in you, well, where do you need to change first and where do you need to change most? Just pick that one. <laughs> If you're stuck, where, where do you need to change most? Where do you need to change first? Um, instead of being overwhelmed by all the ways you need to, need to change, don't fixate on first and most. Was well, that really the first? Is that really, the, like, It's just to help. It's just, it's just to help us. Um, and so what, what's in the area of your life where you can see a deep need for change to be like Christ, and why uh, would that be the case? And so if I even think back through them, Some of the tools I I gave to you were post-it notes, reminders, songs, uh, memorize scripture, um, re-listen through sermons, um, talk to other people about union with Christ. These are all practical tools you could use. Uh, Why is it important you have the resurrection power? Because we really are talking about life from death. Apart from that power, you and I cannot change. Um, Sanctification is not uh, get better. It's not self-help. It is spiritually empowered transformation. Apart from the presence and the work of the Holy Spirit, you can't become like Christ. And, and by you, it's the royal we. We can't become like Christ. We need the power of Christ in us. Our goal is not to try to be better. Our goal is to become more and more like Christ. And so we need his power to help us to grow and change. What's well, in area of life? Um, and so that could be anything, right? And so, the, the definition um, to help us fill in those blanks, you can, you can check yourself. I'm not, I, this isn't graded. But union with Christ is the spiritual reality. This is the truth. This is the real world that we are living in. Um, this is life. It's the spiritual reality that a believer is in Christ and Christ is in them. Um, his abiding presence, his person, his power, yes, is in us. Uh, this is Paul's big emphasis, and um, John Calvin helpfully pointed out that Paul didn't make being in Christ or union with Christ as the doctrine. Instead, it was the entire universe that he put everything else in. And that I think that's a better way to think about it. Or here in the South, um, what's the kind of jello that they make that they put everything in? You know what I'm talking about? Like I had an aunt, like when she brought jello to a family reunion, it was like this jello mold, and there were just floating things all, all in it, right? I don't know what was going on there. Like, and and when I remember as a child one time asking, what is it? She says it's orange jello. Well, I mean, it was, but there's a whole lot more going on inside that jello mold, right? Um, well union with Christ is like saying it's orange jello. There's a whole lot going on. It's just it's the old whole universe, atmosphere of everything that Paul talks about, particularly as it relates to sanctification. So much so that we could say that apart from truly understanding being in Christ, or union with Christ, we're not going to change and grow the way we're supposed to. We just won't. And so union with Christ is a spiritual reality. The believers in Christ, Christ is in them. And the controlling reality of every relationship in their life is to be Christ coming out of them. I'm making very specific application ultimately in these eight weeks to how this applies to the way we relate to people around us. So what does this mean as I do friendship, parenting, grandparenting, marriage, neighboring, workplace relationships? How do these relationships really become impacted or controlled by the truth that as, particularly as it relates to believers, Jesus is in me, and Jesus is in you, how does that now transform the way we relate to one another? What does that look like? How does that come to fruition? How is that made visible? How important is it? Um, Well, Jesus said, this is how people know you're my disciples, by the love you have for one another. And in John 17, he has this lengthy high priestly prayer that's all about union and unity. Even as the Father and the Spirit and I are one, it's my prayer that you be one. Well, how is that possible? What does that look like? It has everything to do with this doctrine. This is central and core. And so it shouldn't be shocking to us then that the modern church movement is away from that and and adrift from it. So uh, modern movements are be isolated. Come in, do your job, and leave. Um, watch a sermon and leave. And, and, and it doesn't matter if it's a person or a screen. I watch it. It doesn't engage my life. I don't engage with those around me. And my community or my tribe or my people group is all outside of that. Which is exactly what Jesus didn't want. Why is that even appealing? Because it's comfortable for people. There's no accountability. And... There's low responsibility. And so union with Christ is hitting all of this, and, and so I'm burdened that we understand this truth, and God has used it. It's been really helpful in my own personal life, uh, and so I'm excited to work through that with you. And so this morning, we'll go to um, chapter, well, you know what, let me just ask, because some of you will be excited about this, and that's good. Uh, how many of you got that definition right? Oh, a couple of you, thank you. So, so how many of you got at least part of it right? Look at those hands. Well done. Well done. I, I mean it. I mean. It. I mean it. We're week three. That's dense. It's dense. I'll give you another shot as we go forward. Um, I, I'm not promising to throw candy at you if you get it right at all. But um, thankful. Thankful for for your paying attention and remembering. Some. Uh, Next week there'll be different blanks, so hopefully that will help you out. This week, though, from Romans 12, we're going to press into it a little bit more this way. Union with the life, death, and resurrection of Christ is actually seen on our daily worship. How we do life every day. So not just on Sunday morning, uh, not just when we're doing family worship time, not just when I'm reading my Bible, but throughout our lives, every day, being one with union with the life, death, and resurrection of Christ it, it comes out that way. So uh, Romans chapter 12, we'll read the, just the first two verses. And then uh, next week we'll actually be a little bit more in Romans 12 as well. We'll start bringing in some Corinthians into it and as we continue to flesh this out, uh, this idea and this, this doctrine. So Roman, Romans 12, Paul's writing this. Um, he has just finished talking about salvation and God's glory that way and how God's pursued his own people. And so now he says this in Romans 12, 1 and 2. Um, when I married into my wife's family, I inherited uh, rela- some relationships, right? So I got brother-in-laws, sister-in-laws, and I got uh, an uncle-in-law. And um, he, he married uh, my wife's dad's sister. So married into the family that way. The previous generation called them brought-ins. Um, I'm like, I ain't going to be called a brought-in. It, it felt offensive to me, but they were all brought-in. So Gary's a brought-in. Uh, Gary was a uniformed Secret Service agent for years, uh, and then became a firearms instructor, um, and he is the, he, he's, retired, he's retired a couple different times. Um, so, it, like, there's actually a video of him. There was a guy way back when Reagan was uh, in the White House. There was a guy that encroached on the White House grounds, and you can actually find the video, the newsreels, of all of a sudden these guys uh, had, actually it was under Carter. Yeah, it was Carter because they didn't want them to have guns out all the time, so they gave them axe handles. Uh, to protect the white house unless you got into the building. So there's actually videos of Uncle Gary with these other officers with their axe handles like just wearing this dude out till they got him under control. So like this is Gary. Gary Gary is so good at shooting. I kid you not, he is one of those guys. He actually was teaching a class and he was shooting, I don't pistol, I don't remember what distance. I think it was a 9 mm pistol. He actually put multiple rounds to the same visible hole. That's 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 Gary. Like he's he's crazy sick good, right? He's so good how good is Gary? <sighs> SEAL Team 6 and Delta Force would bring him in to teach them firearms training. Like, that's how good he is. Like, he's just amazing, right? So one time they asked Gary, did he want to participate in one of their training or, uh, uh, cycles? And he said, sure. So they put Gary on an airplane. And it's, so it's just an airplane with seats, but, you know, out here one of their training grounds. And they said, just whatever you do, stay in your seat. And just stay there. And so after a while, flashbangs come off. The team comes on and they shoot supposed hostage takers in the plane, and, like, one of them is right next to Gary, and they have metal plates on the back of the headrest. So it's like ping, ping, and Gary's just sitting there, live fire exercise. I'm like, no, thank you. Nobody missed. They all did their job. And the question would be, well, how do these kinds of guys, right? How how do people like Navy SEALs or, or Delta Force or Rangers, how do these guys trained that makes them so effective and efficient, well, they actually have a, a saying, a motto that they use, and it's this, slow is smooth, and smooth is fast, and that's how they operate. Slow is smooth, and smooth is fast, because the thinking is, you go in to rescue a hostage, you don't want the hostage to get killed before you can take out the hostage taker, and so your, your, your mindset would be, I better be as quick as possible, but what they've learned is, we want to ingrain, deeply ingrained muscle memory. Just drive it into your brain, and if you do that enough, it's the same reason you and I could sit down and type. I never learned how to type till about 10 years ago, so I'd already gone through seminary, and I had a summer that was pretty free, and I was going crazy, not having anything to do, so I learned how to type. And so I am just watching the typing, and, and so if you type, you're using both hands, same time, and it, you do it enough, muscle memory, you don't think about it. Like, if you know how to type, I guarantee you could sit here without a keyboard, and if you start thinking words, you could hit the right... Keys. It's the same reason a pianist can can two different hands playing a keyboard, different speeds, all across guitars. It's it's the why you can drive home and sometimes your mind be a million miles away and not even remember the trip because it was just muscle memory. It's the same thing. Slow is smooth and smooth is fast. You drive it in deep enough and it just becomes automatic. Muscle memory. Well, I want you to understand this about union with Christ. When we're working with truths that need to be in our minds, repetition of that truth will produce a tremendous effect in us to start living it out in practice. It's really, really important. So I don't believe for one second that over the course of these eight weeks, I'm not going to say things that many of you don't already know. There may be every given week you're like, yeah, I, I, I think I knew that already. But I want you to know part of my goal is to drive it deep. It's muscle memory. And so when we start thinking questions like how does a Christian who's wrestling with a habitual sin, a sin that they keep going back to, a sin, the kind of sin that Hebrews would call a sin which easily besets you or holds you back, how do they really begin to change away from that? How does uh, a stay at home parent? live in the daily reality that Jesus died for me and I'm in that death and he rose again and I'm in that resurrection? How about a person that's wrestling with a terrible diagnosis or sickness? How does union with Christ begin to help them and how can they begin to grow and change? How about the, any one of us when we're at work or um, the person juggling career and marriage and home life? How about the, the first person that's newly retired or maybe there's some other event that is giving you more time on your hands Well, the reality is, union with the life, death, and resurrection of Christ will be seen in how you do daily life. And our goal this morning is to understand that in an even deeper way, in a more impactful way. And so, Romans can help us do that. The first point this morning is normal worship, then. We want to understand this in a normal worship kind of way. So, chapter 12, verse 1 says this I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Now, interestingly enough, King James, um, I I love the translation of one of the words in particular here, where it says spiritual worship in the ESV, it translates it in the King James as reasonable worship. In other words, what's normal, what's acceptable worship, what life should be. So whatever Paul is saying here about the way we do life, should be the norm for the believer. And he's using language intentionally to offset or to contrast normal versus extravagant. That's why he's using these words. So whatever he's saying should be the normal way Christians do life, but it's going to seem crazy to everybody else. It's going to seem crazy Extravagant. Now how do we understand the difference between maybe a normal or extravagant gift? I've got a number of gifts in my office that over the years people have given to me. Um, several years ago, a few years ago, my son, he loves Legos, I love cars, I love fixing things and building things, and so does he. And so it was one of the perfect kind of gifts he got me. As the Lego has a '67 Shelby Mustang Lego set, and so he got that for me. And so if you were to come into my office and sitting there at my desk, this is not little Lego set. It's like this big. It took hours and hours to build. It's super fun. I love it. And um, I'm not normally a Lego guy, but it was so much fun. And it was really cool. And so for uh, at the time a kid um, to spend the lots and lots of dollars to buy his dad this gift. Is that extravagant or is it normal? Um, in my office, I have an early, early copy of Les Mis by Victor Hugo. Uh, running away, one of my favorite novels of all time. And, and my wife got it for me one year. Uh, normal or extravagant? I have a crown of thorns woven by hand by Nick Derocek, Andrew Derocek's husband. Um, that I know was <laughs> involves some pinpricks and some thorn pricks, and normal or extravagant, the, the one you see on the bottom right was actually a gift. It's an original art piece by Daniel Cummins and that he gave to me a number of years ago. I have a copy of Spurgeon's original sermon notes my wife and children gave to me one Father's Day. What makes a gift extravagant or normal? I think sometimes a gift is extravagant, obviously, when it costs a lot of money, when it's a lot of dollars, when it's just been expensive, but but the fact is, cost can be more than dollars, right? It can be time, it can be pain, it can be effort, it can it can be knowing someone. What is it that makes a gift extravagant or normal? I think the, the difference is normal is just ex, is expected. It's it's what would be obvious. Extravagant extravagance seems out of the norm, easily enough. As I said in the King James, it's the word reasonable. A lot of even ESV study Bibles will point out here when you get to the spiritual worship word that, that it's rational service. It's what's expected, normal, logical. It's getting to this reality. Believers would normally present their bodies as a living sacrifice. Normative worship, normal worship, is an expected, understood, reasonable expression of praise to God. We would look at every single Christian then, based on Romans 12, and say, this is expected of you. In other words, if if we were to talk about somebody um, doing... Family life and their child has a birthday. It's their eight year old birthday. Well, you know what? Let's do the double digits, the big one, 10, right? So tenured, they turn 10. What would be a normal expression in that home for a 10 year old child? Could, could we agree that at least wishing the child happy birthday would be normal? Like, couldn't could we all agree if the parents just ignored it, that's not normal? Uh, if they could afford it, based upon the income of the family, it, it, can we agree that it would be normal to give the child some present of some kind? That, like, and again, I think every family financially would be a different place, but if they could, af- if they could afford it, would it not be normal to, to give that child a present? Wish them happy birthday, give them a present. Would it be normal to say, we love you and we're so glad you're in our home? I think that would be normal. Couldn't we all agree if, if you met a child... Uh, or even adult, and you were to say, hey, uh, what was your 10th tenth tenth birthday like? Well, no, my parents didn't tell me happy birthday. I didn't get any presents. Nobody told me they loved me. What, can't we agree that you would think that's abnormal? That's strange. So when we're talking then about Christian life, when I would say something like this to you, death to you Every single day that looks and sounds like sacrifice for the sake of Jesus is normal. Every day. I think suddenly we realize why Paul's using these words because most Christians don't like to think and look that way, do they? What do you mean like Steve, I'm willing to die to myself for a season. I'm willing to give things up for a season. Lent, I love Lent. I can do 40 days of no chocolate. Look how sacrificial I am, and I'm not knocking the, those who practice Lent, but but I mean, like we love to give ourselves a way out. Even nonprofits know in raising money, they've got to give us an easy way out, right? For the cu- price of a cup of coffee, you can feed. Right? They want to make it easy to us, easy for us. They want to make it seem... And so it's really, really hard because I think when we preach the Bible, when we study the Bible, things seem extravagant to us, but Paul's saying it's normal. This kind of living and thinking is normal. Well, it's hard because sacrifice... Again, come back to the, to the passages. Read it carefully. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers... He's only talking to Christians here. By the mercies of God because there's some connection. We'll explore this in just a second. There's some connection between God has been merciful to me, and that drives what I'm doing, by the mercies of God to offer. And so there's a willing offering. We've got a great example. Jesus said what? Uh, No one takes my life from me. I lay it down of my own accord." A willing sacrifice, right, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice. And so it's kind of like if you're, if you're talking to a couple and um, say a wife were to say, I just don't feel like my husband um, really cares for me and protects me. And the husband said, look, sweetie, if someone comes in the door, I'll die for you. She's like, yeah, great. How about change a diaper? Right? Like, do some living sacrifice. Growing up, I remember sitting in youth group and I'd wonder, well, if I was Jim Elliott, would I be willing to take the Alka spear instead of defend myself? They had a gun in the plane. Would I be willing for that? Or if I was in communist Russia or communist China and they um, put a gun to my head, you know, deny Christ or die. Um, when I was a teenager, I read Fox's Book of Martyrs. If you've never read it, you should read it. It is a historical accounting, uh, primarily during the Spanish Inquisition of believers who would refuse to submit to the Catholic Church, Roman Catholic Church, because they were going to follow Christ. And and I remember reading this, and one that I remember just jumped out at me, that I was like, that one, I'm not, I want to believe that I would, but I'm not sure, is they had a dad there, and they had his son in front of him, and they said, you recanted, we're going to kill your son in front of you. That, I'm like, no, nuh-uh. And the son looked at the dad and said, dad, don't ever recount. I'll die and go to Jesus, it's fine. But that's just the. And so I remember thinking this, and it was so much of my life and my mindset that I thought that following Jesus to demonstrate it would be these massive moments. But that's not what he's saying, is he? Daily living sacrifice. And then he uses that word sacrifice, and that's just bloody and ugly. Um, it comes right on the heels of him talking about God saving Israel and rescuing Israel. And so he's kind of like saying, you used to offer sacrifices, so you should know exactly what I'm talking about. It was smoky, and, and it didn't smell like barbecue. They burnt the, the meat, just consumed it with fire. It's bloody. Blood is all over the place. Um, you've got mewing of the lambs. You've got co- loud commotion. It wasn't like this solemn you know humdrum kind of a thing incense burning and oh we're all silent i mean you're slitting the throat of these animals and you're burning them out here you're cutting them up right there fresh it it is just this gory scene because frankly sin is ugly and the payment for sin is gross and he says you live like this and that's normal and that's just a stunning reality to us. And so we want to press it a little bit more, then, and then think about the fact that it seems extravagant. There's just no way around it. Somehow we have to take something that seems extravagant and normalize it. And so someone said, Yeah, uh, when I turned 10, it was crazy. You know, I woke up that morning and had this massive breakfast spread. Uh, and then I was a little boy, and my dad then took me to the local NASCAR track and met uh, a, a NASCAR driver, and I got to first do laps around the track just with him, and I'm 10, it's crazy, but they actually let me drive the NASCAR car. It was amazing, and then I went, and after we had done that, my dad took me to the shooting range, and I could shoot any gun I wanted to shoot, and then after that, we went and, and my parents had made me this huge steak dinner. And then we got to watch whatever movie I wanted to watch. I said to ladies, I wanted to stay up. You'd look at me and say, now that was an extravagant birthday. How do we take that and make that normal? How do we take extravagant worship and make it normal or reasonable in our brains and our minds? Sacrifice is all about value and worth. Sacrifice is about giving up something precious as a demonstrator of the greater value in the worship. The reality is this. A sinless, spotless lamb is precious. It's not going to fight you. It's not going to mess with you. It's cute. It's somewhat somewhat cuddly. It will imprint on you and follow you around, and you're going to take this one-year-old lamb... Totally spotless. You're going to wash it and go all over it because you want to make sure it doesn't have one blemish and then you're going to hold its head in your arm and you're going to take a knife and you're going to slit its throat. There's just a brutality to it. Why do you do that? Because the worth of the forgiveness outweighs, outweighs the value of this little lamb. That's what sacrifice is saying. God, the value of this is worth that. And so God structures that way so that he can make this promise to all of us sinners, all of us who are born sinners, deserving judgment, so he could say this to us. This proves my love for you while you were sinners, i.e. seemingly worthless. My son died the most valuable thing ever, for you. What's the greater value? The demonstration of God's love and glory. Because that's what sacrifice is all about. It's all about giving up something precious as a demonstration of greater value. Approaching life as a sacrifice is even demonstrated by Christ in a few occasions in the gospel. Jesus comes to this point where he rebukes Martha at one point. Martha's trying to serve. Mary's sitting at his feet. Martha gets upset. I'm obviously not going to unpack all the details of that. But he rebukes Martha because he's basically saying, you're giving up the greater thing. The greater thing would be sitting and just being with me. It'd be better for you to just be with me than for you to be super busy about the ways that you think you're serving me. Boy, that tells you something about ministry, doesn't it? More important for you to just be with me than to be super busy serving me. Be with me first, right? And he's saying sacrifice that, sacrifice for, in her case, being the premier hostess in order that you might be with me with the thing of greater value. He capitalizes us on, on this theme of worth and sacrifice in his parables. He gives the parable of the treasure hidden in the field and the pearl of great price. The farmer sells everything to buy the field to get the treasure. Sells everything, all of his belongings. The pearl merchant sells everything to get the pearl of great price. All of this has to do with this contrast of worth and value. But there's a stunning image of sacrificial worship that we see with the woman. And there's two different occasions, two different women who come in and they wash the feet of Jesus and anoint them. Uh, People frequently confuse them. There are two. They occur at different places in Jesus' ministry. They occur with different women. One is Mary uh, Magdalene who comes and does it. The other one, though, occurs in a Pharisee's house, Simon the Pharisee, we learn from the fullness of the gospel accounts, and the Bible deals with her delicately. It deals with her delicately because she is uh, a prostitute. That's not Mary. So this is where the myth lots of times comes Mary Magdalene was a prophet. No, this lady unnamed is. And she comes in, she begins weeping, and she experiences judgment. Because the Pharisee now starts judging Jesus and her. Because he says in his mind, if Jesus knew who she was, he wouldn't have received this worship from her. He would have nothing to do with her. And so then Jesus then responds to this Pharisee. And he says this in Luke chapter 7. Jesus answering said to him, Simon, I have something to say to you. He answered, say it, teacher. I love, I love that. Um, you know, spoiler alert. If Jesus ever says, I got a message for you, probably not the greatest response. Um, but bre- basically bring it. He's like, all right. A certain money lender had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii, which is just crazy. That's like 500 years worth of salary. The other 50. And so still a substantial amount, but not in comparison, right? When they could not pay, he canceled the debt of both. Now, which of them will love him more? Simon answered, the one, I suppose, for whom he canceled the larger debt. Can you just get Simon's seething arrogance? Like, what a simple story. I guess the one who owed him more. And he said to him, you've judged rightly. Then turning toward the woman, he said to Simon, Do you see this woman? I entered your house. You gave me no water for my feet. Which would have been humiliating for Jesus to say this. Because Simon would have had servants. Simon himself could have done it. And so Simon has broken basic protocol. This is normal hospitality, and Simon has violated it. And so it's kind of a demonstration of Simon, you've been a bad host. You invited me to your home. You don't even—you aren't even a good host to me. You don't even do the basic things, but you're busy judging her. This is, this is some of the undercurrent of what's going on culturally here. Do you see this woman? I entered her house. She gave me no water for my feet, but she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. A woman's hair is valuable today, was valuable then. It mattered a lot. It, it's just stunning. It also tells you something. She didn't come with a towel. She didn't come with water. She didn't actually come to perform this particular service of washing his feet. This is just an outflow of the affection of her heart. You gave me no kiss, but from the time I came in, she has not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she has anointed my feet with ointment. Therefore I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she loved much. But he who is forgiven little loves little. He said to her, your sins are forgiven. Now, to make it very clear here, her love has not won her salvation. Her love is a demonstration of her salvation. The basics of the story are very plain. We actually don't have to dive too deep in. But let's give a one-sentence summary. Worship that seems extravagant to others is normal to the one driven by grateful love. It does seem extravagant to Simon. It seems extravagant because of the tears, because of the drying with the hair, uh, the anointing with the oil. All of this seems like a bit too much. And it's totally normal to the woman. And totally normal to Jesus to receive it. Because it is driven by gratitude. Now, let's do a little bit of audience interaction. A little bit of audience interaction, a little bit of participation. Help Steve out. What are some things we can safely say about anyone, Simon the Pharisee, or anyone who would think that that's extravagance? That's normal. Jesus basically says it's normal. She's been forgiven a lot. She loves a lot. This is a normal expression of love. What are some things we could safely say then about people who think that that's extravagant? Will? Yeah, they themselves are not a generous person. They're stingy people. I hold, uh, uh, as the British would say, I keep myself to myself. Right? I hold the things I have not with open hands, but with tight hands. Right, yeah, so they're, by nature, are selfish, ungenerous people. Good. I don't know if ungenerous is a word. I'm just making up things now. What are some other things we might say about folks like this who think that's extravagant? Yeah, Eric. Yeah, all he's thinking about is me. I'm, I'm, I'm me monster. I'm the center of this party. I'm the center of this, what's going on. Good, yeah, these are good. Nicolette. Yeah. Yeah, um, there is a limit to my decorum of service and it doesn't involve the gross. And what's funny is I think we all have our own gross meter. What's gross for you may not be gross for me. There's some things that are gross to all of us. Um, yeah, this is good. What are some other things we might say about people that think, well, that's, that's a bit too much? Aaron. Yeah, they're, they're actually oblivious to the surroundings. And I think that's actually a great reflection of the flip side of the coin that Eric said. Because if all you're doing is looking at you, where can you not be looking? (laughs) Anywhere else, right? They don't see, they don't understand. If we were to put a big umbrella picture on it, we'd say they're proud. We for sure would say this, they don't care. They're ignorant. Do you think Simon understands who Jesus is? And there's no way, is there? <laughs> there's no way he grasps what he's in the presence of God. What can we safely say about our own hearts? Romans 12.1, I appeal to you therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God. Do you know what he's telling us? Become this woman by the mercies of God, to present your, your bodies. I don't think there's any mistake that it's her tears. It's like that's of you. It's her hair on something that seems to everyone else disgusting. Present your bodies as a living sacrifice. Holy and acceptable God, which is your reasonable Worship The costliness which would otherwise seem extravagant is made normal when it is pictured in the context of such a large gift from God. Have you ever looked at someone and say, how could I ever repay you? I'm an emotional guy. You know this. So I'll say this, try to say this without being emotional. Um, But the the last cancer surgery that my wife had, they bring you back to sit and wait to talk to the surgeon. And terrified, trying to trust, terrified. I think you can trust in the midst of terror by just doing the next right thing, just to be clear. I don't think it's one or the other. And Dr. Libby came in, and he said, everything's good. And I looked at him, and I said, I could never repay you. You've given me a gift. With your skills, your talents, and your abilities, your time, your energy, you've given me a gift. I would have paid him anything. Anything. I'm sure you've had similar experiences. You would give anything. You are so overwhelmed by the generosity and the kindness. Words like thank you are not enough. You feel so deeply indebted. There's no request they could make of you that would seem too large for the gift that they've given to you. This is what he's saying. Worship that seems extravagant to others is normal. It's normal to the one driven by grateful love. And so we can press forward then to verse 2 because Paul wants to build and tell us then this is a new reality we live in. Verse 2, so then, really, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. I'm going to give you, again, spoiler alert, all of the rest of chapter 12 unpacks what being a living sacrifice looks like. That's what he's doing. And the first thing he goes after is what? (laughs) How we think. And then how that interacts with daily life. And then it's like Paul knows that's just still too ivory tower. Let me give them some practical mess. And that's what the whole chapter 12 does then. Gives us the practical mess of what living sacrifices look like, act like, talk like, primarily as they relate to one another in a church. But then he throws in some enemies and some lost people at the end, how you relate to those people too. And so that's what he's doing here. So verse 2 so then this new reality of this, this reasonable kind of but seeming extravagant to everyone else happens but not being conformed to the world but being transformed by the renewing of our minds. Conformity here, it literally means to be pressed into the mold of the world. There is an old Chinese proverb that I first read it through uh, C.S. Lewis and then Francis Schaefer as well. And it said this, if you want to know what the water is like, don't ask the fish. I think it's just so great. If you want to know what the world is like, don't ask people to live in the world. Well, that's because we all live in it all the time. We don't realize how we're pressed into the mold of the world. And so he's telling us is now that you are saved, now that there's this new reality, resist being pressed into the mold. That's what he's saying. Now, there's, over the years, there's been different attempts by different um, doctrines over Christianity of how we do that. How do we actually resist being conformed to the world? And so um, one of them is is total immersion. Um, And there's a grain of truth to it where, where Paul says, when in Rome, be as the Romans. In other words, understand that there are good elements and that there are bad elements. And so the elements which are good and acceptable, be a part of those and live your Christianity out in them. Right? Like so does City. Saturday mornings. There's nothing wrong with it. Look, no Christian came up with the idea of Soda City of having all these marketplaces and food trucks and hanging out. And and so total immersion would say, go to Soda City, live your life, meet your neighbors there, go talk to friends there, engage with people in the marketplace, but do it as a Christian would do it. And there is a grain of truth, but then we also have to realize that immersion, there's a limit. There, There always is a limit to immersion, Right? Because there's some things that cease to be holy and acceptable to the Lord. And so while there's a grain of truth that doesn't give you the answer for all of what it must mean to resist being conformed to the world. Another one is then on the flip side is monasticism. It's where the world is the problem, and so you end up with various forms of hermit kind of living, and that's the answer for righteousness. The biggest threat to me is the world. There's, there's three enemies for the believer, the world, the flesh, and the devil, so run from the world. Don't do the entertainment of the world. Don't do uh, the things of this world. Don't be around the world. World bad, world bad, world bad. Run from the world. Be very different from the world. The, the, the most extreme expression in our country that you're going to find with that really would be like the Amish, the Old, old Order Amish. And it's like if we do this, then we're we're spiritual, more sanctified. There's a grain of truth to it, because there are things that are sinful and wicked in the world, philosophies and practices that we must not be. Right? Um, you are in the world, but don't be of the world. So there's a grain of truth to it, but it doesn't really ultimately work as a system. A third general approach has been to transform them then seek to transform the world. I don't like the wickedness of politics, so we need Christians who are politicians. I don't like the wickedness of judges. We need Christians who are judges. I don't like the wickedness of authoritarianism. We need Christians who are authorities. I don't like the wickedness of the art world. We need Christian artists. We need Christian musicians. We need Christian this, Christian this, Christian this. And we're going to transform the world and the culture. There's a grain of truth to it. It's like uh, Abraham Kuyper famously said, there's not one square inch of this globe that God has not put his foot down and declared mine, there's a grain of truth to it. But then at the end of the day, we recognize we're learning from Nehemiah that you can do all the city building, you can have all the right people, but unless the hearts are transformed, nothing changes. And we, last time I checked, we can't change hearts. And so they all have this seeming grain of truth, and there are good parts in all of them, but there are limits to all of them. So how do we really see the world rightly and resist its conforming power? He actually tells us this. Transformation by the renewal of your mind and testing by discernment. Daily mind transformation and lifelong discerning testing. Last week, we talked about ways to remind ourselves of the fact that we are united with Christ. I started this sermon with asking you what are some practical ways to remind yourself that you are in Christ. Why is Steve doing that Because Paul said it first 2,000 years ago. This isn't some new heavy revy from Steve. I don't have some special pipeline to Jesus. He doesn't listen to me any more than he listens to you. It's because he says this is how this daily kind of mind change, thinking change, and then discernment, ongoing practice of discernment, is what will help resist being conformed to the world. To press this even a little further, how does that stay-at-home parent live in the daily reality of sacrificial worship? How about the person battling sickness, the the man or woman at work, The, the, the person juggling career and marriage, someone with a lot of time on their hands? And so for that, we can actually build a couple connections as we wrap up this morning first connection we want to build is a connection with christ how is this possible and i want to tell you this is only possible because jesus is already in you if you're a believer we are in christ this is only possible if you are in christ romans 8 you know romans 12 is 12 chapters in shocking (laughs) way back in chapter 8 paul said it this way in verses 5 through 11 those who live according to the flesh Anyone who does not have the spirit of Christ does not belong to him. So quick spoiler alert there. Either you've got the spirit or you don't. Either you're saved or you're not. Everybody who's saved has the spirit. That's his point. Verse 10, Romans 8. But if Christ is in you, although your body is dead, this flesh we live in, the spirit is life because of righteousness. If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, He who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. It is possible, hear me now, it is normal, normal for Christians to experience lifelong transformation of their minds and their lives in a way that matches the life and thinking of Jesus Christ. That's not extreme Christian. That's normal Christian. That's not sold out Christian normal Christian that's not on fire Christian it's normal Christian so what do we do with all these people who claim to be Christians that aren't sold out on fire or zealous for it Ooh, gut check time that's what that is how do I become less like Simon the Pharisee and more like the prostitute weeping So the other connection I think we need to build is the connection to our daily lives. And If you flip your little handout over, you'll see a feeble attempt at a way to help you build those connections. Because even as the Navy SEALs teach us, right, we want to go smooth. We we'll want to go slow, smooth, and that results in me being quick or fast. I want to ingrain this deeper in my mind. And so if you have this chart in front of you, you have on one side truths of union with Christ, and the other side you have your daily life, your daily existence. This is what I want to ask you to consider just for a few minutes as we wrap up this morning. What are connections you could make between things on the left column with things on the right? So that it becomes more and more and more of your daily life. Let me give you an example to show you what I mean. I think close to the bottom there on the left-hand side, second one from the bottom says, Extravagant worship and a sense of gratitude. Living my life in a way that's saying, I want to be Jesus and like Jesus, because Jesus is in me, to these people in my life. I could directly link that to the top one, a stay-at-home parent struggling with worth value and boredom or exhaustion. I can directly link them because I can begin to understand that, that Christ has put me in a position uniquely to die to myself every day for this little human being. And it hurts, and it costs me, and it's painful, and it's difficult. And every one of those points of pain, exhaustion, difficulty, exhaustion, resentment in my life that I begin to feel actually be, can become reminders of the sacrifice of Christ and the immense gratitude I should feel that he has rescued me, preserved me, has saved me. He went willingly. God, help me to develop a mindset today. And guess what? Monday turns into Tuesday, into Wednesday, into Thursday, and they all feel like they're the same for you. That's daily. Here's the problem. If you're chasing a feeling, I can never guarantee you that feeling's going to change. But if you're chasing Christ-likeness, you know him, I can guarantee you that you'll become more like Christ. That's one way you could build a connection. I'll give you another one. Instruments of righteousness on the left-hand side. We learned that last week. Literally, my body, one of the ways it should be a living sacrifice is it should become a weapon, a tool in the hands of God to work towards righteousness. I can directly link that to having time on my hands Or juggling career and marriage. How do I prioritize my career, my marriage, the things in my life? I'm going to choose God's top five priorities. And then anything else either fits in or it just goes out the window. Because I am intentionally going to use this physical form as a weapon in God's hand against wickedness. Build the connections. You don't need to build every one of them. It's not like um, you ever, you know, a little kid, grade school, you have those things. Draw a line between every single one of them. You don't have to do all of them. Can I just tell you this? Can I just beg of you to do this? Do two or three for your own life. Two or three ways where you can begin to understand and live every day. This is only possible because Jesus is in me and I am in him. And I want the worship of my life to be in such a way that it's normal what others would deem extravagant. You know what the nice thing is about that? Eventually somebody will say to you, that seems extravagant. And that's when you get to open the door and say, oh, then let me explain to you the mercies of God that have been towards me and let me tell you about my Jesus. He's, just not, he's not just a name to me or an ancient teacher to me. He's not just something I do on Sundays. You see, I had a lot in common with this woman back in Jesus' day whose whole life had been given to immorality and who was used and abused and cast aside. And if Jesus' day was anything like our day, over 95% of the woman in that career had experienced abuse as a child. And I'll be honest with you, I don't think his day was radically different from our day. In other words, I am wounded, I am broken, both because of what has been done to me and because of sins I've made. And he rescued me. There is no worship I can give that's extravagant, it's normal. Let me tell you about that, Jesus. And in that moment, Christ is made big. And life has a different kind of value then, doesn't it? Because your life and your value and your worth is not based on things you have done. It's based on what Jesus has done for you. Union with the life, death, and resurrection of Christ is actually seen, it's made visible, made real, in our daily worship.